Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Stand by to launch FanStream Sports. Three, two, one. Let's start. Hello, sports fans. Welcome to FanStream Sports. Nothing, nothing but pure sports. Hey there, it's Tito Jeff Fedoff. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Uh, this is a FanStream Sports powered by DSP Media Online. Got a lot to get to today. Um, Want to start talking about this whole Kyrie Irving deal uh, getting traded by the Nets to the Mavericks. Um, it was for uh, Spencer Dinwiddie. Dorian Finney-Smith, an unprotected 2029 first-round pick, and then second-round picks in 2027 and 2029. And here's my problem with Kyrie Irving. I think he's a fantastic talent. Um, But he really is one of the more selfish players that I can think of in my lifetime watching sports. The reason for this, a couple reasons. First of all, um, you know, he he forced his way out of Cleveland, wanted to go to Boston, says to Boston, hey, I'm here, I want to stay here long-term told the fans, I want to be here long-term. I want to sign the next contract. I'm going to be here long-term. And then forced his way out there and went to Brooklyn. Get to the Brooklyn. It's him. It's KD, Harden. We're going to do this thing. We've got these, uh, uh, this next big three that can do some things here. And then through a series of events, injuries part of it, but also some of the things he did where he wouldn't get vaccinated. Again, not saying he had to get vaccinated, but he chose not to. And that did affect the team during that entire COVID year when he couldn't play home games. So that was a big thing also. And then, you know, now he gets to the point that the whole coaching thing, you know, where he said, we really weren't going to kind of coach ourselves. We're going to actually make reference to the fact that he and KD were going to be the ones running the team. Um, and then they have the, the fracture with the organization, um, you know, with KD demanding a trade at one point. Um and, you know, it, it, they wanted Nash fired, KD did, all the different drama in there. Harden had enough, wanted out, went to Philly. They get Ben Simmons in who can't play. All these, and all of this is not Kyrie's fault. I'm not saying that every single part of it is Kyrie's fault. But Kyrie certainly played a role in it. And where Kyrie goes, it seems like drama is going to follow him. I took a very unpopular stance um, back when Kyrie played in the Olympics after uh, a Cavaliers long season, maybe maybe it's been the championship season, but played in the Olympics after that. And I thought that was selfish to do that. And let me tell you why, because I think that for all the injuries Kyrie had had, you know, from his freshman season at Duke, where he only played like 11 or 12 games before he was done for the season, the injury he battled in the NBA, he's got a bit of a smallish frame. And then after his longest regular, longest season of basketball, deep into the playoffs, he then decided instead of resting his body to get ready for the upcoming NBA season, he goes and plays the Olympics. He didn't get hurt, but nonetheless, it did take away from his uh, downtime to prepare for the upcoming NBA season after that. I think he was selfish for that reason, just because he has injury issues already. I took a lot of flack for saying that. People thought that, oh, you're, he's there for his country. He wasn't there for his country. I firmly believe, I believe Kyrie was there for the marketability. I think Kyrie wanted to have a gold medal to say he has a gold medal, not necessarily because he's there, you know, um, for his country to represent them in the Olympics. I could be wrong, 
but that's how it looked. That's how it looked to me. I don't think Kyrie has this or had this strong sense of patriotism. More so, I think you want to be able to say, I was on a gold medal winning team with one of these dream team, you know, uh, whatever the, the version of it is for that year. But I think he wanted to do that. Okay, so now he's in Dallas. And paired with Luca, Dallas is excited to have him. Uh, uh, what all the what, what people are saying, Cuban and guys like that, is what they're saying about having him there. Um, he does want another deal. He wants a max deal, a four-year, $198 million deal is what he's looking for. I have no trust in him that if you sign that, look, he might be great this season, the rest of the way. He might be a model citizen, although he did say if the, uh, it was reported by Stephen A. Smith, if the Nets didn't trade him by the deadline, then he was going to sit out the rest of the season. Not sure if that would happen or not, but um, he could have a great rest of the season, a fantastic postseason, and who knows how far the Mavs can go, although I still think they're missing a couple of pieces before they can really um, win an NBA championship. Doncic and Kyrie both need the ball in their hands. That's all there is to it. Uh, Doncic's got a great, a tremendously high usage rate. By some of, you see some of the triple doubles he's put up, the 50-point games and whatnot. Um, and Kyrie's going to also like to have the ball in his hands. I think it'll be fun to watch. I'm not convinced it will be great for the Mavericks having both those guys there. Do you trust Kyrie? And where he's gone, he's done something to blow it up, either – demanding trades, um, making the, the comments he made that got suspended for eight games this year by the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, the, um, the the things he said you know, about wanting to not play with LeBron anymore, but then LeBron wanted back. All those things follow Kyrie. He's only 30. Tremendously talented player. It's just a question of if you can get the right coach, GM, owner, teammates around him that will make him play unselfishly, I'm not just talking about with the basketball, being an unselfish teammate, um, that, that's going to be the key on watching what Dallas can do here. Maybe Jason Kidd's that guy. Uh, maybe playing with Luka will turn him around. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I was surprised the Lakers didn't get him. I thought they would make the, big, the biggest play, throwing those 27 and 29 first-round picks out there, uh, plus the expiring contract of Russell Westbrook. The interesting part now about the Nets will be, what does Kevin Durant do? Is Durant happy in Brooklyn? Um, if I'm Durant, I'm pissed at Kyrie Irving. I'm pissed at James Harden. And I'm pissed at the Nets because Durant, look, they signed him when he first signed to his, to his, uh, his deal as a free agent. They knew the first year he wasn't going to play. So the Nets already have kind of given Kevin Durant, um, uh, they've given him some money to, to not play that first whole year, which was a good contract for him. But what's Durant going to want to do now? Is he going to demand a trade as well? Will other teams be willing, uh, you know, to pounce on that? Should the Nets just blow it up? I say yes. I think that if they can get in for Ben Simmons and, and get a decent package for Durant, go for it. Blow it up. See what you can get for those guys. Uh, get young players, get picks, whatever you got to do. But this version of the Nets as far as a championship team, that window was never open, and now it's closed. So. They've got to make a move, and if Durant, I would not be a bit surprised if he demands to be traded, and we'll see where he can go there. The Suns have some interest in him. I was surprised the Suns offered Chris Paul up in a deal for um, to try to get Kyrie, only because of the volatility surrounding, um, you know, Kyrie versus the leadership 
and the role that Chris Paul plays on the team of the Suns. Now, with the salary thing, obviously some guys ha- would have to be included in deals with different teams, including Chris Paul and that deal. But I don't even know if a Kyrie and a Devin Booker backcourt would work that well. So Kyrie's off to the Mavericks. We can watch that now and see where that goes. See what happens in that. I got to believe we'll hear some kind of news in the next uh, you know, day or two before the deadline about Durant. Is he happy? Is he not? Does he want to stay? Does he want to go? Do the Nets want him to stay or go? And same thing with Ben Simmons, because this Nets team now, they are not going to uh, make any kind of run in the playoffs. I don't care how good Kevin Durant is. They're not good enough to compete with Boston, Philadelphia, Milwaukee. That's just the way it is. Other trade uh, notes that could happen. I think D'Angelo Russell, the Timberwolves would love to move him as well. Uh, we'll see if, that, if there's any traction there on that. I think the Clippers would like to have him. Clippers might um, release John Wall, buy him out of his contract. John Wall has had moments this year, but his career's over. As far as being a productive player, and um, I, I don't see I don't see John Wall with this team come the postseason time. I think they'll buy him out before that if they can't move him before the trade, trade deadline. Again, trade deadline, 3 o'clock Eastern on Thursday, and lots of names could be moved still. Uh, the Mavericks may make another move. The Nets might move Dinwiddie in, in a separate deal. But I'll be keeping a very close eye on what Brooklyn's doing. Other news in baseball. And we'll get to Super Bowl talk, don't worry. we got plenty of time to talk about Super Bowl. I want to talk about baseball though, real quick. Because Fernando Valenzuela, the, uh, long, the pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers, longtime pitcher for them, and uh, a phenomenon. If you don't know what a phenomenon Fernando Valenzuela was, go back and look up 1981 Major League Baseball. Awful season because of the strike. Really was a terrible season for baseball fans during that stretch where there was um, no games for a long period of time. And then they came back to play the All-Star game in Municipal State in Cleveland. But they had a full, they had, they finished out the season unlike 94 and played the playoffs. But in 1981, Fernando Valenzuela burst on the scene with the Dodgers. Now, give you a little bit. The news is, let me get back to the news now. The news is the Dodgers are finally retiring Fernando Valenzuela's number 34 number. Long overdue. Long overdue. He was not a 20 year pitcher with 300 wins, anything like that. But the, the, the way he came into the league, the lightning way he came into the league and just became an instant celebrity was nothing short of incredible. It reminded me a lot of when Mark Fidrich came into the league in 1976 and what he was able to do as a rookie. It was that kind of a year with Fernando Valenzuela, but he had a longer shelf life, obviously, than Fidrich did. Valenzuela first came up in 1980, a late season call for the Dodgers, and went 2-0, and made 10 relief appearances, and a 0.00 ERA. Um, he also had 17, 17 and 213 fish, 16 strikeouts, five walks. But 2-0 there and looked good. And then in 1981, when he's with the big league club, Jerry Royce is supposed to start opening day. Royce can't. I think it was an injury or sick, whatever it was. But Royce, for whatever reason, could not start opening day. The Dodgers put this 20-year-old kid in, Fernando Valenzuela, who had a Louis Tiant almost kind of motion. And he would look up at the sky before pitching. So he goes with his windup. He looks up. I don't know how many kids tried to imitate that back in the early 80s, but that's what Valenzuela did. And he came in and was just phenomenal from day one. Not only could he hit pitch, he could also hit. He was also a big-time hitter uh, as far as pitching goes for the Dodgers. But he went 13-7 in 1981, uh, 2.48 ERA, 11 complete games, eight shutouts, Cy Young Award winner and Rookie of the Year, obviously, for the Dodgers, won the World Series. But it was 
just like this thing where it was an event to watch him pitch. It was must-see television. If it was on TV to see this guy pitch, you had to follow him. And, yes, he could hit. He was knocking in runs left and right early on in the season. Had a great start to his season. Got a little slower after the strike and everything, but uh, ended up leading to the World Series, and they won the World Series there in 81, beating their rival Dodgers. Uh, the next few – he never duplicated that kind of success to where he was that unhittable over the course of the season. He did have moments. Um, he did win 20 games one year with the Dodgers. Uh, they, they really threw him a lot, and his arms started to wear down, and they suffered for that. He suffered because of that. Uh, bounced around a little bit after his – he actually sat, sat out an entire season, but he also pitched with, like, the Cardinals. Uh, he pitched with the Padres as well. But he did have some success later in his career – after taking one year off. But you can't, in my lifetime, there's only been like three baseball players. And really, I was five when Fidrich came out, so I can't really count. I guess two. There are two baseball players who I saw, not three, I'll see each of them, three who I've seen who were like, that just came onto the scene and you were like, oh my God, what am I watching? And it's hard to do in baseball. You can do it in basketball and football a lot easier. In basketball, because of the, the high-flying aspect of it, so the passes, the more, there's more highlights. More highlights in a basketball game than in a baseball game. No doubt about it. Football, same way. More highlights in a football game. It's easier to make that bigger impact as far as uh, must-see. And also it's easier in football because it's once a week. With baseball, it's hard to find that, like, oh, my God, I need to watch this player. In the three times I've seen it in my life, each was one of them. But um, the first one's Fernando, probably. And then Eric Davis in that magical uh, season and a half when Davis was healthy for the Reds and was, you know, the, the first could have been the first 50-50 guy if he wanted to be. He had incredibly quick wrists, couldn't stay healthy. Valenzuela and Davis are my two, like the first two I can remember as far as I need, I need to follow this player. And if it was on a, in back pre-ESPN baseball games on every day, but uh, pre-regional sports, that was games on every day. If it was on the game of the week on NBC back then or Monday Night Baseball on ABC and the Dodgers or Reds were playing and Fernando was pitching or Davis is out there you know, playing center field for the Reds, you had to watch it. They were that kind of um, level of excitement and the energy, the enthusiasm that they brought to the game. Uh, and Valenzuela was so funny about him early on. He couldn't really speak English. There was always a translator there working with him. Uh, but Lasorda loved him, and he was perfect for Los Angeles and did a great job there in his career. Now, I will tell you this, and this is where we get into the debate about halls of fame and what should a hall of fame be. It's a museum, but how strict should they be on putting people in? Now, some people say that the Baseball Hall of Fame is already watered down quite a bit because they've had these different committees that come through, guys like uh, Harold Baines has gotten in. Uh, Ted Simmons, um, Fred McGriff. Well, I, I used to make an argument for McGriff, but I, Baines I, I didn't think should be in. Neither should Simmons. It's okay. As I've gotten older, I don't care so much. I don't complain too much about who should be in, who shouldn't be in. I do think, though, that other than, you know, like I think Thurman Munson for the Yankees should be in. And I think Valenzuela should get consideration. I think when guys come through and have the kind of impact he had, he doesn't have the numbers. I will admit that. He does not have the numbers to warrant, like, oh, my God, this guy's a Hall of Famer. They're not there for him. He does not have that. But the impact he had on the game is undeniable. 
undeniable what Fernando was able to do, how much excitement he generated. I'm telling you, go back and watch anything you can from 1981 baseball, Fernando Valenzuela. Watch what he was able to do, the way people talked about him, the, the, uh, the way crowds increased, the same way they did with Fidrich with Detroit when he got going, and how when, Tigers, when the Tigers were on the road, uh, road attendance increased tremendously when Fidrich was out there, their home crowd. Big difference there. Fernando, they always sold out Dodger Stadium. You know, Dodger Stadium always had, I'm sorry, a lot of fans, no matter who was pitching or what was going on. But look at some of the road games and some of the national attention that the Dodgers got because of Valenzuela. He is somebody I think they should consider for the Hall of Fame strictly because of the impact he had. But the Dodgers, getting back to the original part of this, the crux of the story, the Dodgers um, have announced their retiring as number 34. Long overdue. Um, but good for Fernando, good for the fact he's getting that kind of recognition now. All right, uh, let's move on now to uh, college football. And Notre Dame, uh, James Laurinaitis, their lack, grad assistant linebackers coach last year, former teammate of Marcus Freeman, has left Notre Dame to go back to Ohio State, where Laurinaitis was a star, three-time All-American, where his family really wants to be. Um, he took a, the same job with Ohio State, grad assistant linebackers coach. And I'm not going to ding Notre Dame for this, but because I think that Lord Nice always wanted to be back in Columbus. I think that was ideally where he wants to be, is in Columbus. He only did the one year with his former teammate, Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame, but now he's with Ohio State, um, coaching the linebackers under uh, Jim Knowles. And I think it's a great move for Lord Nice. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a fantastic move. It is not a lateral move, which will get to my point in just a second. It is a move up. He's going to have better talent to deal with at Ohio State to coach than he would have at Notre Dame. Uh, also, Tommy Reeves, the offensive coordinator, former Notre Dame quarterback, who was beloved in South Bend throughout his college career, now he's been the OC there, and he was uh, tempted to leave last year when Brian Kelly left, more than that also, to go to LSU. Tommy Reeves stuck around. Now Tommy Reeves has been hired as the offensive coordinator of Alabama. Again, a step up, without even knowing what the money is. The money might be better, might be worse, might be the same. I have no idea. But Tommy Reese has left Notre Dame to go to coach better talent at Alabama. Not meant to be a knock on Notre Dame. It's just the fact of the matter is Alabama more talent than Notre Dame. Ohio State more talent than Notre Dame. Brian Kelly left last year to go to LSU. More money? Sure. I'm sure it was more money. I don't know what the total was, but I think it was more money. But easier to recruit for LSU than for Notre Dame because of some of the restrictions. Now, what I'm getting at here is Notre Dame is in a very it, – it's a weird situation now because Notre Dame is no longer considered a career job. It is, it's, it's now become more of a stepping stone job. And granted, it's not a stepping stone from like the MAC to Ohio State or from the MAC to Alabama. That's a bigger stepping stone there. It's not that big of a step. Nonetheless, it's a job that will lead you to other ones if you do well. And that's the part that's concerning if I'm a Notre Dame fan, because no longer is Notre Dame considered to be a destination school. Brian Kelly showed that. He had a lot of time at Notre Dame, could have had more time there. Decided to go to LSU. SEC, chance to run with the big boys every year consistently. More TV, more exposure. Um, a better chance to compete for a national championship at LSU. Brian Kelly went from Notre Dame to LSU, and it wasn't a lateral move. 
regardless of the title. Same thing with Tommy Rees. It wasn't a lateral move. Tommy Rees took a step up, regardless of money, by taking the offensive coordinator job at Alabama. He has bigger aspirations than Notre Dame, as did Brian Kelly, and as does James Laurinaitis. And Laurinaitis, I'm not blaming Notre Dame for it, I'm not blaming Freeman for it, but that's just the way it is, though. I mean, he has a better opportunity to be a, um, a coordinator somewhere someday taking this route, going to Ohio State as a grad assistant who works with the linebackers. So that's where Notre Dame's at now. And I think they'll be good this year. I love the fact they got the quarterback out of Wake Forest going there now. who saw all the ACC records. They're going to be good this year. I root for Marcus Freeman. I hope Marcus Freeman does well. I do. But Notre Dame, though, is not, and plus the fact they're not in a conference now, when you get to the 12-team playoff, there's no way they can get a first-round bye because the first-round bye is only going to go to the four highest-rated conference champions. Notre Dame has no shot at that. The best they can do is be seated fifth. Notre Dame, the best thing they can do right now is join a conference. Knock on the Big Ten's door and say, hey, we've had a change of heart. Or tell the ACC, we want to be a full member, not just in these other sports. I want football to be a full member as well if you want to do that. The Big Ten would be the smarter call for Notre Dame. But Notre Dame, is they continue to slide back a little bit each year. This is not massive steps back as far as notoriety goes, but it's a slower it's, – it's they are um, casually, casually declining. And uh, Notre Dame's not going to be what it was under Lou Holtz or before that with guys like, you know, Eric Parsegan or Dan Devine or whatever. They're not going to be at that level again. They have a chance if they join the Big Ten, they have a shot at getting there. But it's going to take a huge, um, a huge shift on their part in order to get back to that potential status. All right, let's move to the NFL. Super Bowl coming up this week. And um, I was trying to think of who needs this Super Bowl more. And I, I think it's Mahomes and Andy Reid. They five straight AFC title game appearances for them. They've got the one Super Bowl. Mahomes is the half-billion-dollar man with the contract. And they've had all these opportunities. You know, they asked Joe Burrow for the Bengals, what's his championship window? He said, my career. Cocky, Joe Burrow, that's what he does. But you have to start wondering about the window for Mahomes and Reed because they've had plenty of opportunities now. They've won one Super Bowl, and they've lost one. And now you have to look and decide how many more chances will they get because the Bengals and Burrow are getting better. Josh Allen and the Bills are eventually going to break through, I would think. So it, it's never it, – it's it's never something you take for granted getting to the Super Bowl. The fact that Mahomes now is going to his third one is incredible. But Andy Reid and Mahomes need this game more than Philly. As much as Philly was the best team in the NFC this year, and it's great to look at the playoffs, it's, it was never – it hasn't been like, a, oh, well, the Eagles are definitely the best team. They should win. I, I don't see it that way. I think that it's, the Eagles, it's a great story if they're there. Jalen Hurts, after laying an absolute egg in last year's NFL playoffs, when the Buccaneers just stomped the Eagles. Uh, I think they ran 25 plays to eight. Uh, the Eagles' eight offensive plays in the first quarter jumped out to a huge lead. They may have been up by 30 points at one point, if not mistaken, before a couple of late touchdowns by the Eagles made it more respectable. But he was dominated. His team was dominated last year. Now the fact that he's here, I know he's got the injured shoulder still. But the fact he made it here, that, that's already like an accomplishment 
for the Eagles. They won't admit it. Eagles fans won't admit it. But the fact they got here now, they're here now in the Super Bowl, that right there, regardless of what happens on Sunday, it's been a great season for Philadelphia. You can't say the same for the Chiefs because of the fact that they've had five straight opportunities to get the Super Bowl, and this will be the third one. Mahomes and Reed need to win this game this week for their legacies. You don't want to see Mahomes. Mahomes doesn't want to go to one and two. Reed doesn't want to lose another chance in the big game. It feels to me like this is more necessary for the Chiefs to get this win. Um, so I can't wait to watch the game on Sunday. I think the Chiefs will win, but it should be an entertaining game nonetheless. Uh, the Chiefs beat the Bengals in the AFC Championship game. Controversial calls in that one. Um, the, the extra fourth down, extra down and whatnot. And um, the, the Bengals, though, blew it on that last minute, last, uh, last minute they had a late hit on Mahomes out of bounds. So Kansas City deserved to win that game, regardless of what he's going to be officiated. Joe Burrow now is going to get his big contract. I don't know if it will be um, of the – you know, uh, Patrick Mahomes half billion dollar range, but now's the time to get it done. And this is where it's going to be critical for Cincinnati to how they construct the team going forward. I, it, it's always easier to win if you've got a stud quarterback on a rookie contract, you can sprinkle the money out other places or stud players on rookie contracts. And you can spread the money out to different positions, different veterans, fill in some gaps here and there. Once we get this big contract for Burrow, that's going to change some of that. Uh, T. Higgins, who wants a lot of money, might be a casualty. There'll be other casualties on the, on the defensive side of the ball. It'll be interesting how, how, um, how Cincinnati is going to be able to address this and keep the team competitive. They are still the best team in the AFC North. They still have the best quarterback in the AFC North. Maybe the, the most arrogant, arrogant the, the cockiest quarterback in the, in the NFL for sure. No one's cockier than, than Joe Burrow but they have the talent there to make another run over the next several years. So I think that they'll get the contract done. Burrow's got to be almost in the Brady mindset of a little bit more team friendly, probably than what he would get on the open market, just because he wants to compete for Super Bowls. There's going to be concessions made by all the players that are up for contracts. If that's what you want, if getting the Super Bowl, winning the Super Bowl is your main priority, I don't like saying the players should take one for the team and take less money, but they've got to be creative and open-minded, these players, as new contracts um, come up. Brock Purdy uh, for the 49ers. Had a great run there as a starting quarterback after Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo went down, and then Purdy gets hurt against the Eagles. There's all talk about, oh, yeah, Purdy's the number one guy going to next year. Uh, Purdy will be the one guy, number one guy. Lance will be the number two guy. They may have a little bit of a battle in camp, but really it's Purdy's job to lose. They're not going anywhere else. Well, after this injury now with Purdy, which put him on the shelf for six months, the 49ers need to rethink this offseason. I know Tom Brady's out of the picture. He's retired now, finally. Um, and it's either going to be a free agent or they're going to make a trade for somebody. I, I think that the, the 49ers need to at least kick the tires on Aaron Rodgers and see if he wants to come on board because with the defense, the creativity of the offense, with Shanahan there, Rodgers, I think, would work really well in San Francisco. Look, he's 39 years old, and we got to stop thinking about quarterbacks with their end, like what the shelf life is for them. Brady's kind of reset that. Because Rodgers, could Rodgers play four more really good years if he wanted to with the right cast, lots of weapons around him in San Francisco, or wherever he chooses to go, Las Vegas Raiders is another option, but uh, which in which case maybe Carr 
could come to San Francisco. I'm just not ready to throw all my eggs in the Brock Purdy basket. I may have been uh, six weeks ago. I may have been four weeks ago. But anymore, after this injury, I wanted. I, I think the 49ers need to have a backup plan in place that is not Trey Lance-centered. That's somebody else, who it be it a, a, a rookie draft pick again or some player they can acquire and trade or a free agent type thing. I think they need to have um, a different plan in place. Aaron Rodgers could go to the Jets. Nathaniel Hackett, the former Broncos coach, former OC uh, for Green Bay. He is now the OC with the Jets. So is there a chance that uh, Aaron Rodgers could try to force his way to the Jets with Garrett Wilson there? Um, and, you know, they've got a, a decent young backfield as well. So not sure on that one. I think the Raiders are in play for Rodgers to reunite with Devontae Adams. It's going to be a lot of fun to see what Rodgers wants to do and what the Packers want to do about Rodgers. I, I personally don't think the Packers want another year with Aaron Rodgers. I think they're fed up. I think they were fed up with Brett Favre at one point. Ran its course. Favre, a prima donna near the end. Rodgers kind of being the same way. Rodgers is being difficult. Uh, and himself last year, but not endearing himself to the wide receiver room and the rookies and trying to get work in with them in the offseason as much as he could. That hurt the team this year. Um, it forced them to uh, struggle early in the season. So I think the Rodgers want to see what they have. In, I think the Packers see what they have in, in, in uh, Jordan Love. And I think Rodgers will be better off going somewhere on like a two-year commitment, uh, it be it to the Raiders, the 49ers, or the Jets. I think all three of those would be good options for him. Uh, but we'll know more about that, too, as we get a little closer to this, um, uh, closer to the offseason here after the Super Bowl. Jim Harbaugh was wooed again by the Denver Broncos. Um, their, their owner flew out to meet with him before the Broncos settled on Sean Payton. They worked out the draft pick compensation with the Saints. And I, 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 you got to believe that Sean Payton, if he's willing to go to this team in Denver and have them give up some draft assets to get him there, he must really believe in Russell Wilson. Sean Payton must have a very strong feeling that Russell Wilson's season last year was an aberration and he can turn around. And maybe he can't. Sean Payton had a lot of success with the Saints with Drew Brees. So it, it's, a, it's a big statement that Payton's making because I don't think Payton would go there just to take the money and not care how the team does. I think he really believes he can build a winner there. And Russell, you're married to Russell Wilson. Wilson signed the big contract extension. He's there. Payton has to believe in him. They've got some draft capital coming in after making a couple of deals they made last year. Uh, but they had to send some out. Obviously, they were secure Sean Payton. Also, they secured uh, Russell Wilson from the Seahawks. It's going to be interesting to see how they do that. He walked into – Payton's going into a team, uh, going on with a team that's in a really tough division. When you got the Chiefs with the Holmes and Andy Reid. The Chargers are loaded up. The Raiders are in. But still, it's a tough division nonetheless for the Broncos and Sean Payton. So, he's got to have a big belief in, um, in what he can do with Russell Wilson and if he can make that work. The uh, state of Tennessee is doing something that's trying to re really trying to scratch me right where I itch. There's a couple of lawmakers that want to make the day after the Super Bowl a national or a state holiday, a holiday in the state of Tennessee. And I love this idea. I've said for years, years, NFL should play the Super Bowl on a Saturday. You've already got two weeks off. Just cut it short by one day. Play it on a Saturday. I don't care when it starts. Start at 8 o'clock at night. That's fine. Have a great halftime show again. Perfect. Bars and restaurants 
all around the, the country will do better having a Saturday night Super Bowl. We don't, most of America, I'd have to still because I'm sports talk radio, but most of America does not have to go to their nine to five on a Sunday. So just make it on a Saturday. It makes it, you don't, don't tell me about tradition. It's always on a Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday. It just rolls off the tongue. Doesn't mean we should keep doing it that way. Super Bowl on a Saturday would be better for the country, better for sports fans. There are in some European and some African nations where they've had, um, uh, they, they've had national holidays declared after a big win in soccer. Uh, they've had different countries have done that. And look, look this is, our soccer here, the, the country is united with the NFL, with professional football, and with the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl's got fans that aren't football fans because they want to see Rihanna this year. They want to see Dre and uh, Eminem last year. And so it's, it is a huge, it's a party for our country. We should have the next day off of school and work because although the NFL is nowhere near, like, you know, Major League Baseball turned off their fans with all their night World Series games um, and made it impossible with the length of the games for kids to stay up late and watch the game. That's not the case here because usually it's a 6.30 kick and they can still stay up and watch most of it. But why not have a situation where every kid can watch all of it and not have to worry about school the next day? And you can have the, you know, the, the enormous hype for the halftime show still. You can have all those things still in play. You just don't have to have the game on a Sunday in the evening. At that part, so if Tennessee can pass this, I would love it. I hope other states would do it as well. NFL draft, I want to talk about this before we wrap this up today. Um, but in the NFL draft, I got one more thing at the draft too, so I'm sorry. NFL draft coming up quickly in the April, and um, a lot of debate will continue to happen about the quarterback class and where they should go. I personally, biased as a Buckeye, personally, yes, I think C.J. Stroud is the best quarterback in the draft. I like him better than Bryce Young. I like him better than Will Levis. I like him better than Anthony Richardson, all those guys. Stroud, to me, has the the right size and skill set to be the best quarterback in this group. I know there were questions about Stroud's running ability. He did run against Georgia. And no doubt about it, throughout the season, if you watch him, he did not run often. And when he ran, it looked uncomfortable. It looked choppy. It looked almost like he was always looking over his shoulder to see if someone was gaining on him. But one of the great things about Stroud is his ability to not get hit. He did it in the pocket. You watch it. He very rarely took sacks. He was able to get rid of the ball. He was able to move out of the way and take a knee if he had to. He was very good at staying upright for the entire game. And that's a great talent to have. Now, Stroud may run more at the NFL level. They may need him to run more. He may have to do it. But you can't teach easily the skill set he has about knowing when to get rid of the ball before taking a hit. He's got a better he, – he's got more accuracy than Bryce Young. And by the way, in Bryce Young, my, my biggest issue with Bryce Young is his size. He's listed six feet tall. I don't – I'm not sure if he's really six feet tall or not. I know he's played some of these numbers. But since 1984, only two quarterbacks listed at six feet or shorter have won the Super Bowl. Uh, one is Russell Wilson in 2014. Um, uh, the other is uh, Drew Brees. Those are the two people – six feet and under as far as their list height goes that have won the Super Bowl. You've seen some of the other stuff. Uh, you know, Kyler Murray is struggling with, the, with his, ability, his style of play. Tua Tagovailoa, his style of play. They're struggling at the NFL level with injuries. 
uh, you know, Murray the ACL right now, Tagovailoa with the a myriad of concussions. So I would go for the bigger quarterback with the more accurate arm. They both played great schedules. They both played against very talented. When you look at Ohio State to do against Georgia, the Stroud had a great game against Georgia. I'm not buying Will Levis at Kentucky, and I'm not buying Anthony Richardson, and I'm not even sure about Hooker out of Tennessee. I think there, there's one surefire all-pro type quarterback in this draft, and it's C.J. Stroud. Young might get there depending on the situation. But I think Stroud, and you know, the Raiders could trade up for him, the Colts could trade up for him, but I think Stroud should be the first quarterback uh, taken off the board in the NFL draft when that happens, end of April. All right, one last note I want to get to um, about uh, college basketball. And Jim Beheim is 78 years old, been at Syracuse for, forever. And he came out and said, Wait, look, he's an arrogant guy. Beheim's always been an arrogant guy. And he said, look, you know, he's asked about next year. when he's going to be 79 years old. Will he come back and coach Syracuse again? They're on the verge of missing the NCAA tournament uh, for the second year in a row, which is not something that they do. I think there's a one at a time in Bayheim's tenure, missed the tournament two years in a row. But anyway, Bayheim said, I'm, not, I'm leaning towards coming back next year, but I don't know. But it's completely my decision, which is true. Bayheim's earned that. But he said, it's completely up to me if I want to come back or not. If I want to come back, I'll come back. If I don't want to, I won't. No one's making the decisions except for me. Meaning the university. University really has no say in it. Uh, you know, the university's not going to fire him, and he knows that. But that's still an arrogant thing to, to project. Then he went on to, to claim how much he dislikes the current state of college basketball, the transfer portal of NIL, and even accused um, a couple of schools in the ACC, uh, Pitt being one of them, and uh, Wake Forest the other, as buying. He said they, were, they bought their teams using the NIL. They bought their teams. And that ruffled a lot of feathers with those two schools, but also with the ACC, and now Beheim came out and backtracked off of that. Um, in his statement, I want to make sure you get the statement correctly. He said, I'd like to clarify remarks. I made a conversation I with a media member following our game Saturday evening. I apologize to the schools I mentioned. I believe the ACC member institutions are in compliance with NCAA rules governing name, image, and likeness. It was not my intention to imply otherwise. It was his intention to imply otherwise. It absolutely was his intention. This is the part that I hate when coaches do this. When they say something, we know exactly what they were intending to say. He was accusing other schools in the ACC of buying their teams. Own it. You said it. Now you can say I was wrong. Say, you know what? Upon further review, I was wrong about that. But don't say it was not your intention to apply otherwise. It was absolutely 100% your intention, Jim Beheim, to imply that these schools, Wake Forest, Pitt, have bought their teams. Just own up to it. Just say, yeah, I said it. I'm wrong. Or I stand by it. But don't say it wasn't your intention because it was your intention or you wouldn't have said it. All right, that's it for the Jeff Phillips Show. Thanks to in Fan Street Sports, powered by DSPMediaOnline.com. Lots of great content on our, on our app. Make sure you go check it out and uh, listen to all the other guys on here with their I, – I do the Buckeye Daily Blitz. we got a Fighting Irish Daily Blitz. We've got the Black Gold. we got all kinds of shows on this uh, on this platform that you should check out. So that's it for the Jeff Fiddoff Show. Follow me on Twitter, at Happens. Have a great day. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 
96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.